You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Change of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, or perhaps better, of his own will, he brought us to birth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. You may not have sung it for 42 years, but you know the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And at the end of uh, last Sunday night, when the sermon was on the first part of the uh, first chapter of James on the subject of trials, we sang that hymn, Have We Trials and Temptations? Is There Trouble Anywhere? What should we do? I wonder if it struck you that what the hymn writer tells us to do is to pray. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And I wonder if it struck you at the end of the service that nothing had been said about that in the sermon, not so much because the preacher was deficient, he is always deficient, but because James did not give us that counsel in this chapter. It's always good to pray but the counsel, take it to the Lord in prayer, is not the only counsel the Lord gives to us. And uh, you remember how later on in James, James says, if any of you is afflicted, then let him pray. So, have you trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. But that's not the only thing the Lord instructs us to do. And we noticed last time, didn't we, that in this particular context, what James is saying is if we're going to respond rightly to trials, afflictions, suffering, discouragement, then we need to be able to look at it in a quite different way from the way in which the world looks at it. And so his counsel is, are you going through trials? learn to count those trials as joy. And you can only learn to count those trials as joy if you have a gospel understanding. If your thinking is illumined by Scripture, then in many ways your response, even at an affectional and emotional level, will be transformed. And now we're coming to the other part of the hymn, Have You Trials and Temptations? And if you have temptations, it's good to take it to the Lord in prayer. But that's not actually the counsel that James gives us here. Of course, he's not saying everything that the Bible says about temptation. Otherwise, uh, this would be the only place in the Bible that temptation was discussed. But he is saying, in the divine economy, it's not adequate simply to say, solve your problems by praying. When God has said, but I have spoken to you, I've given you my word, and I've given you my word to teach you how to respond to situations. And so you must not only come to me and speak to me about them, but you must listen to me about them. You must hear my word, and you must allow that word to penetrate and percolate uh, to the point at which, in a sense, instinctively, with Christian instincts, you learn how to respond on the one hand both to affliction and on the other hand to temptation. And it's this that he's speaking about here. 
And as he does so, the first thing he needs to do is to clear up some confusion, isn't it? Um, have, you ever, have you ever been puzzled by Jesus saying, when you pray daily, every single day of your life, pray, Father, lead us not into temptation. And has somebody ever asked you the question, does God lead us into temptation? And James is helping us here. And the very first thing he does is he clears up a confusion that perhaps he thought was in the minds of these Christians to whom he was writing, dispersed as they were. Uh, if he had known them as their, as their friend, then uh, he hadn't seen them for a long time. He's heard about them. He's writing to them. And he says, now, you need to be clear about this. Notice the way he puts it. Nobody should ever say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, we need to get the distinction clear. When somebody is tested, then it's appropriate for them to say, God is testing me. God is putting me to the test. He's wanting to see at the quality of the work that He's done in me. But in distinction from that, James says, you dare not say when you are being tempted, God is tempting me in the sense of God is enticing me to sin. So these two things actually go together. God is testing us when we are tempted. That's a test. But God is not enticing us to sin. Of course, the great illustration of this is our Lord Jesus Himself. Remember uh, uh, the way in which His temptation is introduced? That He was driven out by the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted by the devil. And you see what Luke is saying in his description? You see how, how Luke grasps what is going on here? Uh, the Lord Jesus is being tempted by the devil, even while He is being tested by God. Uh, he learns obedience through the things He suffered, and He suffered temptation. But God, His Father, was not was not enticing him to sin. And this, is a, this can be a very helpful thing for us to understand so that we don't say, oh, I'm being tempted. God must have deserted me. And it's also a guard upon our souls when we are tempted to be able to say, I see what's happening here. Among the other things that are happening, and we'll come to them in a second, among the other things that are happening here God is putting me to the test. He, he wants to see what's in me. He, and He wants me to see what's in me. He, he wants me to experience what He has done for me and now what He's doing in me. And uh, it's in that context that James gives us uh, what seems to me to be a, a, a wonderful little summary a kind of cameo portrait summary, both of how temptation works and how the Christian believer is preserved in times of temptation. Have we trials and temptations? Of course we have trials and temptations. And you're not human. You don't have trials and temptations. And you certainly don't go very far in the Christian life before you have trials and temptations. So, this is, this is bread and butter teaching that he's giving us here. So, let's look first of all at what he says about the, the pattern of temptations working, and then we'll look at the protection that God provides for us in our temptation. Because he's, what he does here, he, he doesn't say, let me tell you about a time I was tempted, you know, and give an autobiographical narrative. That might be quite helpful. He does something much more helpful. He says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to analyze for you how temptation works. Now, when, when temptation comes, it, it doesn't come to us wearing the labels that James gives it, does it? It doesn't say, hello, I am temptation. 
and this is how I work. Sometimes it comes suddenly and insidiously, and and we're overtaken before before we've even begun to think about it. And so, James is doing something very important for us. Maybe, maybe a, a, an analogy will help. Happened to watch uh, an interview of Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf, who are married to each other, great tennis players of past generation. And she was asked, do you watch a lot of television? She hardly watches any tennis on television, but Andre, he's always watching, tel- uh, watching tennis on television. And she said he's always analyzing what's happening. You know, if you're into sports, uh, it, is a, it is really a remarkable thing to listen to somebody who really is an expert who is able to analyze exactly what's happening um, in any sport. And, and, and a really good analyst will show you things that you saw but didn't see. Uh, the Masters is on just now. So you'd see the balls flying around, but then Paul Azinger comes on or Ken Brown comes on. And uh, they say, now, one, let me explain to you what is happening here. Let me explain to you why this golf course is so difficult. I've actually played on that golf course. It is infinitely more difficult than it looks. But they, or they've got these fantastic new cameras, and they'll slow the motion down. Um, basketball is unbelievable to watch on those slow motion cameras, and you see the genius of uh, these extraordinarily talented basketball stars, and you actually see what they're doing. I mean, it just looks as though they're throwing the ball up there, and it's landing and going down the hoop. But then you see the, the skill, the instinct, the training, the, the slow motion frame by frame by frame, just as I suppose a, a radiologist might say, now, there, there was the picture six months ago, and I want you to see how this is, how what we are doing is, is shrinking the tumor. And, and there was the next one we took, and the next one we took. And this is what James does. Uh, he doesn't just say to us, when temptation comes, just resist it, friends. You just got to resist it. Well, he's really saying, if you're going to be able to resist it, you actually, you need to begin to develop instincts that enable you to understand what is actually happening. And one of the things that developing those instincts does is it helps you to slow the action down. Because unless you slow the action down, you may not be able to grasp the language that temptation is speaking. And uh, any of us, and there are numbers of us here who have been ministers in all kinds of places, we know so many people who have sat before us and uh, said, I didn't realize what was happening. And that's what James is doing here in these, in these verses. Um, there is a characteristic pattern. There's a cycle. I call it the temptation cycle. And it's always present in temptation. It may, it may just come like a blur. It may be that we sense one part of it and not another part of it. But these aspects are always present in temptation. And James takes us very patiently through them. He says, first of all, it begins with attraction. You're not tempted to things that you don't like. And so he speaks about desire. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Let me use some I-O-N ending words, which I obviously love so much. Temptation always begins with attraction. That is to say, you are drawn 
attracted towards the instrument the evil one is going to use in order to tempt you. And as I say, it doesn't usually come with a big label that says, like a government health warning, flee, I am temptation. This is true of the very first temptation, isn't it? How is it that Eve falls to temptation? Because the serpent snakes her along in the course of the conversation until she's standing. She, she has no idea what he's doing, you know. I mean, here's a speaking serpent, and apparently it doesn't strike her as being odd, and she's, she's uh, you know, just wandering along, having this conversation, uh, not seeing what is happening, and uh, it just so happens that he's slithered her along to where the one tree in the garden that they've been forbidden to eat is standing right in front of her. What does she see? Remember what Genesis 3 says. She sees that this tree is attractive to the eyes, and its food looks delicious. That's what she sees. And that's how temptation always begins. Um, And it can be It can be trivial things. It can be massive things. But this is how it always begins. It it always begins by the appeal something makes. Now, notice this. The appeal something makes to feelings and affections and to sight. And right from the very beginning of the Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures, it's as though the authors of Scripture are, are trying to help us to understand, as we often say, don't we, Christians need to learn to see things through their ears. Because all she sees is attraction, and she's not hearing what God has said about it. And so, In that moment of attraction, in Eve's case, and often in our cases, the second part of the cycle has already begun to work. What's the second part of the cycle? The cycle is deception, isn't it? Um, This is what Eve herself said. The serpent deceived me, and I was deceived. How was she deceived? She was deceived because she thought she saw what was there, but she saw only what her eyes could see and what her appetite, her affections, her instincts could grasp. She didn't see with ears that had listened to the Word of God, and so she didn't actually see what was really there. All she saw was that this tree was desirable for food and it was attractive because there was a promise that it would uh, make her wise. Satan, when he uh, works in this way, is always trying to blur our vision. Uh, Calvin is this beautiful metaphor he uses uh, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion where he says the Scriptures are spectacles to us. He says, we're like old and bleary-eyed men. Now, I'm old, and I am now bleary-eyed, and I see you, but you're like, you're blurs. And, and that's how it is. That's how I actually see the world. But my problem is that I live in an entire world in which everybody's bleary-eyed. Nobody sees clearly but everybody thinks they see clearly. And this is why we need so much the spectacles of the Scriptures, so that we can see clearly, because we're so easily deceived. We trust our eyes. And uh, as we are drawn away, as we are attracted in this way, uh, we are so easily deceived. Um, uh, James uses language that, uh, that you might use if, if instead of playing basketball and golf and tennis and all these other things, you were a fisherman. 
Why? I have a friend who was clearing out his father's house as his parents moved into a residential home, and his father said, I think I've got some fishing rods and some flies there, keen fishing family. And my friend told me during the week, he said, I found 25 fishing rods and 10,000 flies. Why does any mortal man have 10,000 flies? Some of you can say, there's no flies on me. Why do you use flies? Why don't you stand on the riverside and say, come on, little fishy, come on, little fishy, I could do with you for my dinner. Fishermen and women to the last are deceivers, aren't they? I mean, they're nice deceivers. They're not nice deceivers if you're the fish. You see, and here I am, oh, 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 little fishy. There's a nice-looking fly. I mean, you would think by now, you'd think by now fish would recognize these things. And say, oh, that's not a real fly. But you see, they're as bad as human beings. You think the fish are stupid? Men, we're just the same. You see, we're deceived. We're and we're allured. He uses that language, doesn't he? It's so interesting, the language he uses. And each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, by his own desire. And it's like, you know, you're, you're a little fishy. You say, I think I'll go a little closer. Well, it looks okay. It doesn't look as though it do him any harm. I'll just have a little bite. So there's attraction, and then there's deception, and then the next stage that James provides an insight into here is what we could call preoccupation. He says the desire, you see, then becomes a kind of fixation, doesn't it? Um, I think I've seen this over and over again, and, and unless unless there is deliverance at this point, there is, there is nothing but danger and disaster. When the, when the attraction, it, it, when we think that's the attraction, it's out there, and then, then we're deceived, and, we, and we're like fish, and we open our mouth, and then when we swallow, uh, what happens to a fish? I guess the fish becomes completely preoccupied with the fact there's something sticking up its gullet and it can't shake it off. And, and that's how it works. And you see it again and again and again. Sometimes it takes place very slowly. Sometimes it takes place in, in situations that will lead to almost unmitigated personal and spiritual disaster. And other times it happens in situations that nobody will ever know except you, the Lord, and the devil but you, come, you become preoccupied. And what's that preoccupation doing? That preoccupation means, as it were, there's less space in your mind for the Word of God. That's what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? She just became preoccupied with this tree. And, and there was the fruit, and there was the, there was the serpent saying, you know, go on. And she gets these blinkers, the blinkers of preoccupation. Um, so that in a sense, we not only enter into temptation, but the temptation enters into us. And as we know, just in life in general, when something invades the mind, the problem is that it's the very instrument, the human instrument we use that has been invaded. It's like having a virus in your computer, isn't it? That the problem is when the virus is in the computer, uh, using the computer is not going to get rid of the virus. And this is the third stage, attraction, deception, preoccupation. And then very interestingly, James uses the word conception, doesn't he? He says each person is tempted when he's lured, enticed by his own desire, and then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Conception. Does this remind you, incidentally, of a story in the Bible? 
I wouldn't be at all surprised, wouldn't be at all surprised, although I think it unlikely, that some of those people who first heard this letter might have thought, oh, now I remember. This is James' sermon outline that time he was preaching on Second Samuel 11 and 12, on David and Bathsheba. And how David was attracted to this woman on the, on the neighboring housetop. And then, then he was drawn in and then he was deceived. I mean, how deceived he was. And then his deception became a preoccupation. He was, I mean, this was A, this was a married woman. B, this woman was married to one of his finest soldiers but he's become so preoccupied that these issues, like the divine commandment, you shall not commit adultery, like the divine commandment, you shall not steal, which incidentally includes stealing another man's wife. And then the divine commandment, you shall not murder, when he gets engaged in the murder of Uriah the Hittite and arranges his death at the front line and thinks he can cover it all up. And then the, the word comes that Bathsheba has conceived a child. And it's as though James is saying now, you know, if this is an echo of Second Samuel 11, and twelve, and and think of think of the number of times you have cheered on Nathan the prophet when he said, "You are the man." And then listen to the word of God saying, "Saying that to you, yeah, you know, not in such a public way, and and perhaps not in such, please God, not in such a massive way, but in all kinds of ways." I've 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 kind of. Uh, I've been so critical of David. And yet the same pattern of temptation has found its way into my heart. You see, for David, uh, he, he must have seen Bathsheba before this. And maybe there were times when he didn't desire her. And maybe there were times when he did desire her, but he was where he should have been, as Second Samuel tells us, as the king. He should have been going out to war because it was springtime. He should have been with his men. And if he'd been there, he wouldn't have had the opportunity, even if the desires had been stirred up in him. But when desire and opportunity meet, then the then the conception took place as this fourth stage in this temptation cycle, attraction, deception, preoccupation, conception, and uh, eventually, for want of a better word, ending an ION, there's subjection, isn't there? He's mastered. He thought he was master. He thought he could draw out of this any time he wanted, but he's drawn into the web of temptation and uh, he finds himself in subjection. Somebody will be able to think of a word ending in ION that means death because that's really what it is. That's, how, that's, that's where there is closure, incidentally, in Second Samuel 11 and 12, isn't it? The baby that was born died. Um, and this is what James is doing. It's, it's staggering, really. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It's, it's, as, though, it's as though the movie David and Bathsheba was playing, and you just thought it was a really interesting Hollywood movie, and James comes along, and he's a real shrewd pastoral analyst, and he says, what did you see there? He said, I saw this, you know, this beautiful woman and this great king and, you know, and, and we're glazed over. And James comes along, he says, did you not see what was happening here? 
Do you not know enough about yourself to see how temptation works? And you can see why he's saying this because, you know, I happened to watch a bit of the Masters last night and uh, you listen to the analysis and you think, gosh, I never saw that. I never saw that. Or even you watch a football match and, you know, it just seems like, you know, 22 guys kicking a ball around and then at half time they come on and they do all the drawings and you, you think, and, and you know, they've got these things on their socks or on their boots or on their on their shirts somewhere that tell you exactly how many miles they've run during the course of the game, and they've got all this information, and it's as though they, they sit back and they say, they're not always right, of course, they sit back and they say, just let me show you what happened. See the arrows. And, and the thing is, you think they were just doing, you know, they, you think these boys just turned up and they're just geniuses and they do this. They've been practicing this hour after hour after hour after hour and their manager has sat down, Sir Alex has sat down with them or whoever. Uh, Brendan Rogers has sat down with them and, he's, and it's the same in all the sports. And then maybe if you turn on to watch the, the practice ground at the Masters, I mean, you think these boyos just turn up with a, a bag of clubs and get some balls and they're whacking it away and there's their caddy and there's their coach and there's their putting coach and there's their swing coach and there's their psychologist. Why are all these guys needed? Because they're all analysts. I'll take your head. I'll take your arms. You know, I'll take your hands. The dear friend who's a uh, what do they call them? Um, he's, a, he's the golf man at one of the great golfing universities in the United States, and uh, he took me once to play golf with him, which is another series of stories. But he was so excited. He said, next week we're taking delivery of a machine, and this machine, I think he said, measures 312 points of information when my golf squad is putting. Now, you know, most of us have played putting. It doesn't seem to be rocket science. I mean, all you do is the ball is there, you've got this thing in your hand, there's a hole there about four inches in circumference, and uh, you just kind of move your hand. That's all you do. And you think, what is happening here? Why is he so excited? I mean, why is he not saying, throw the thing out? You know, uh, Because he, he's going to be able to kind of point by point take these guys and say, now, look, what we're discovering on the machine and the analysis is that your, your, your right thumb is twitching a wee bit when you putt. And so we've noticed that, that, that whenever the club head comes in contact with the ball, it, it's, it's just causing it ever so slightly to spin in a, an, in a way that takes it to the left. That's why you miss your putts on the left. Now back to the sermon. <laughs> this isn't a golf lesson. But you, see, you see what's happening then? And the first, oh. And so they... They, they rework it, and then instead of the, the ball just sliding past the left-hand side of the hole, he finds that more and more times, and you know, if, if you're an inch away, it's the same as though you're 300 yards away, it's still another shot. And the margins are so slim with these people, aren't they? Now think about what James is doing. He is a master of this. And he, it's as though he's saying to us, now just get this pattern into your head, so that whenever you find yourself, you know, dear brothers and sisters, we need to learn to be a suspicious lot in this world. A happy lot, a thankful lot, a self-giving lot, but also a suspicious lot. You know, Jesus was a suspicious person. Did you know that? He didn't entrust himself to people who believed him. That's what John tells us. He didn't entrust himself because he knew what was in people. Isn't that interesting? So here is something, you know, and, we, and some of us are more naive than others. And we don't have that 
we don't have a critical disposition. Well, that's good, but we need to learn to have minds that are suspicious of an ungodly world and analyze it so that we're able to say, and now I see what's happening. And we don't get drawn in. So, this is, this is James' analysis, the pattern of temptation, the temptation cycle. Now, he doesn't leave us there. Actually, it looks as though he leaves us there. So often in the New Testament, it looks as though the apostles just leaving there. You know, here it is, get on with it. And you know, we often say, no, keep your head down in the passage and keep on asking the passage and asking the Lord to help you as you read the passage. Lord, you wouldn't leave me in the lurch having told me this, would you? I mean, there's no, it's helpful for me to know this, but how am I going to be protected? And it is very interesting to see what James goes on to speak about immediately, because I think what he's doing is providing us, yes, in the first place with the pattern of temptation, but he's also offering us protection against temptation. I may have told you before, one member of our family, when they were very young, sat me down one Sunday night after I'd been preaching and said, Dad, I can teach you to preach in such a way that everyone will want to take notes. I'm not wildly enthusiastic about my sermons being put down in people's notes, but I love my children, and so in order to humor this child, I said, well, what do I need to do? And this child, not to identify the gender, since we have four of them, and only one of them is female, uh, this child said, well, every time you say, now there are three things here you need to know. I see the men, you know, trying to get a bit of paper, and the women are down in their handbags or their purses, if you're an American woman, and they're if, they, if you can just tell them three things they need to know, three things they need to do. So, if you just sprinkle your sermons with three things you need to know, you'll ace it. Well, there are three things you need to know. What are they? The first is this, obviously. You need to learn to be familiar with the temptation cycle. Knowledge is power here. I mean, think of somebody who tries to deceive you, but you see through them. You've met them before. You know, maybe it was a different person, but you, you know the tactics. I mean, the, devil has, the devil is not infinitely wise. He has only so many tactics, and so he keeps using the same tactics. And the reason he keeps using the same tactics, alas, is because they've proved to be so extraordinarily successful. So we need to be able to see through the enemy. It's not God who's luring me into this temptation. But then the second place, as we think about protection, knowledge is power knowledge as defense. It's knowing, seeing through what is happening that enables us to guard our heart, because now we see reality in its true light. If only Eve had done this in the Garden of Eden and had seen the tree through her ears, that was the tree, the loving and generous and gracious Heavenly Father had said, just show me that you love me and trust me because I'm your loving heavenly Father, do not eat the fruit of that tree. But you see, she was, she was glazed over. She forgot the temptation cycle. That's point number one. Point number two, which arises immediately in this passage, is not only be familiar with the temptation cycle, but be convinced of the unchanging goodness of God. Ever wondered why in this passage, just kind of all of a sudden, James goes, seems to go off at a tangent. Don't be deceived. That's, that's the point of understanding the temptation cycle, so don't be deceived. But then he seems to shift gears completely. Every good and 
gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow, due to change. What's that got to do with temptation? That's the preservative from temptation. When I am utterly convinced that what the Heavenly Father says in the gift of His Word and does in the gifts of His Son and of His providence, when I am absolutely convinced that everything He is and does is perfectly good, I have a massive defense against Satan. Why? Well, think about Genesis chapter 3. What was the nature of the temptation? God's way is not so good for you. God's way will not be so happy for you. And here's the kicker. If you take God's way, then you'll be disappointed. If you really want happiness, pleasure, fulfillment, and you see what the devil is doing. He's, he is invading her mind to twist her, her view of who God is. You know, there are six times in Genesis chapter 1 when what God does is said to be good. Have you ever thought there's something wrong about that? In the Bible, I mean, in the Bible, there are never sixes. There are always sevens. So, why are there only six goods in Genesis chapter 1? Ah, because there's a footnote to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, that only appears in Genesis chapter 2. It was not good for the man to be alone. And so, God made him a wife. And that meant that it was good for him to have a wife and not to be alone. That was the seventh good. I don't know why Genesis 1 doesn't mention it, but the footnote to Genesis 1, you shouldn't stop reading the Bible at Genesis 1. The footnote to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 says, aha, got you there. You were, you were reading Genesis 2 and you were thinking, why are there only six things that are good here? But here's the seventh. So Genesis 1 and 2 are saying God is perfectly good. Everything He does is good. You realize how good He is. And what does Satan try to do? Satan seeks to dislodge Eve from believing in the goodness of God and that everything He does is good. Now, why is this such a great protective to us? Because whenever we are enticed into temptation, it's as though the object of the temptation and the evil one who is seeking to lure us into that temptation is saying, this will be better for you. You'll enjoy this more. This will be good for you. This will give you pleasure. And you see, until, until the the drawing out of my affection towards that good, that pleasure, that satisfaction, that whatever it is, until that affection is broken, I am dead in the water. You know, sometimes as ministers, we have, we have people sitting with us who have been unfaithful, engaged in what they call affairs. Um, and I always, I always ask the same question. I may use different words, but what I want to know is, has that affection been broken? Has that preoccupation been broken? Because unless and until that preoccupation and affection is broken, I don't see much hope. It is so strong. But you see, here's the thing. You know, the most quoted sermon in this pulpit, at least in the years I've been in the church, is Thomas Chalmers' great sermon on Colossians 3, the expulsive power of a new affection. 
That's the protection. You see, when my, when my affection has been captured, it, it's in my mind. And so my mind doesn't have the resources to deliver me from this affection and enticement. I need help from outside. And this is where the gospel comes in. This is where the expulsive power of a new affection comes in. We were joking before the meeting. David was saying there were seven of his elders, I think, sitting with drive these seven elders out. And so we said, well, you know the story in the gospel. The ones that come in will be worse. Um, And you see, if if someone just tries to drive out that captivating affection in their own energy and feels they succeed, then the devils that come in will be bigger and stronger and will last longer. Only the expulsive power of a new affection that fills your affections, that then masters your affections in a divine way is going to be adequate protection. And this is what he's saying. Oh, he's saying, learn the goodness of God. Be convinced that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I shouldn't keep you, but I'm going to keep you. I must tell you this story. I was years ago speaking at a Desiring God conference that the Desiring God Ministries, John Piper's ministry, organized. And one night there was a concert. And the church had a choir among its many choirs, maybe this choir they had created called uh, the, I think it was called the, the, the Choir of the Nations. And it really was a choir of the nations up there in freezing cold Minneapolis, people from all over the world. And one song they sang uh, was like a calypso, it was calypso, arranged in a calypso style, and so there was a choir singing. And then there was this fellow came grooving across the stage in one of these Hawaiian shirts on, or Bahamian shirts on, and, he's, and they're singing antiphonally, antiphonally. And the song is, our God is good all of the time all of the time. And then there's a kind of series of verses, you know, if you're in trouble, you really need to know this. Our God is good all of the time, all of the time. This guy's, you know, he's, he's in his, he looks as though he's in his 50s, and he is having the time of his life. And John Piper, who many of you know, leans over to me quite deliberately. And he says, you see that man there? Well, I could hardly miss the man, you know. He said, dead pan. Brilliantly, he says, that man. Well, what do you think he tells me about that man? That man, he said, is one of my elders. You know, I'm, you know, Presbyterian there, you know, sitting with my tie, shut, you know. I thought, I'm not going to be shocked by this. So I leaned over after a moment's thought and I said, John, do you ever rent out your elders to other congregations? <laughs> The real mistake I made was then to go back home and tell the congregation this story. Now, that was a pastoral error of great magnitude. But the event really made the the words stick in me. This is something you need to know. Your God is good all of the time. And when it's hard to resist temptation, part of the difficulty is because Satan will seek to convince you that he's not really good all of the time, that it will be hard if you resist, that it will be sore if you resist. And then there's a third thing, and I'll just have to give you the heading here, because he goes on to say this, of his own will, he, he brought us forth, brought us to birth. It's the picture of childbirth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's he how is this a real protection against the evil one when he tempts us? It's because we remember the new power we've been given in new birth. We're no longer under the dominion of sin, and we remember the new family we belong to. And what a protection that is. I mean, I've been protected, I think, from many things because my mother told me 
going out to do things. Remember, you're a Ferguson. Well, she didn't need to explain to me what being a Ferguson was. It was, remember, you belong to this family. What a protection that is. Well, but what have we failed? Well, you know, we're all getting old here who preach. And I don't know that I've sung this in 52 years, never mind 42 years, but it's still true. Some of you will remember it, you old timers. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open, and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. That's where he shows how good he is to you, that he gave his son for you. And if you know he gave his son for you, and you're born into his family, then by God's grace you'll be enabled to resist. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for its power. And thank you too that even though we do it so inadequately and it seems to take so long sometimes to, to explain even a few verses of Scripture that this is a, a fathomless treasure of help to us. And so we pray that you would enable us to hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.